Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. As we go to the Word this morning, I want us to look at the message for today as persecuted, the church of Smyrna. Uh, in this series, I'm looking at seven words that Jesus has to each of the churches, and his word for the church in Smyrna is captured in persecution. Let's go to the text, chapter 2 of Revelation. We're going to look at verses 8 through 11, and then we'll continue with the message. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Smyrna is the second city of John's addresses. And it too, like Ephesus that we considered last week, is one of the great cities uh, in this area and of Asia Minor in the first century. As a matter of fact, Smyrna is a city that was vying to be known as the first city of Asia. It was north of Ephesus, about 35 miles. It was also on the port, and so it was a port city that enjoyed much of that trade. And though it was not as large nor as prominent as Ephesus, it was also a city known for great emperor worship. As a matter of fact, they would not be outdone by Ephesus. And so the way that they wanted to build their city was for splendor. They wanted to develop it for notoriety. So when people thought of Smyrna, they had something to think about that was amazing. They were famous for their stadiums. They were famous for their library. And they had the largest public theater in all of Asia. It is even purported that Smyrna is the birthplace of the epic poet Homer. Maybe some of you read him in high school. Many of you were likely supposed to read him in high school, whether you did or not. It was famous for its thoroughfare called the Street of Gold. When you came into the port of Smyrna, the Street of Gold wrapped up around Mount Pegasus, where the synagogues, the temples to the earthly gods were. And it was known as a crown or a garland around the temples of the gods. And at the top was the Acropolis on Mount Pegasus. It was the crowning part of their religious society. And in addition to their developed beauty, 
Smyrna as a city benefited because they were an early ally of the Roman Empire. So when the Roman Empire was spreading across into Asia, they allied themselves early with the Roman government over the opposing governments. And when Rome won, they enjoyed a sense of privilege that many of the other cities didn't have. Smyrna, in every way, as a contemporary city, positioned itself to be the first city of Asia for the Roman Empire. This was the future. They wanted to be on the front and leading edge of it. But amidst all of its splendor and amidst all of its notoriety, Smyrna was a very hard place for Christians to live. The church in Smyrna was struggling. And it tells us in this passage that it was faced with three very specific trials. First of all, tribulation. Now, tribulation is a reference that can include any of, but most likely parts of all of the following. It can include physical or mental or social or even economic oppression. It was just, the tribulation is a reference to simply, it was a hard place for them to live and life was very heavy in every way. The second trial that they were under was poverty. They were impoverished from a worldly perspective. And, and that impoverishment was due predominantly to the harsh conditions against Christians in the city. As a matter of fact, one scholar tells us this in describing why the church of Smyrna was impoverished. It wasn't due to some normal economic condition, nor was it due to the ineptness of the people of the church, but rather because they were Christians, it was due to the confiscation of their property. It was due to the looting by hostile mobs against them. And it was due to the difficulty of earning a living in a hostile environment because they claim the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, it was Christian persecution that produced their poverty. And it was not just a poverty that was normal, but it was an impoverished state of greatness that was created by a context that was intentionally antagonistic against them. But acknowledging their poverty, what did Jesus say to them? You're really rich. Is it just a cliche? Is it just a, a trite statement Jesus was making to try to get them to ignore the reality of their situation? Not at all, friends. Not at all. Jesus was stating an eternal truth over a temple reality. And that's what we're going to look at more today. The third trial was the slander. The church at Smyrna was one vigorously slandered and it was done by those who claimed to be Jews, it tells us in verse 9. They, they claim to be Jews, but they're not. They're actually members of the synagogue of Satan. That word for Satan there is a word that literally means antagonist, just nitpicking and tearing away at every turn. You see, Paul teaches that to be a true Jew is not about outward conformity, but rather inward posture of heart. And likely this was a sect or a group of those who had converted to Judaism for the sole reason of avoiding persecution. You see, the Jews enjoyed a special status under the Roman government because they were an ancient religion when Rome took over 
And because they were monotheistic, in other words, they worshiped only one God, instead of demanding and enforcing that they worship Caesar like everyone else had to, they gave them an exception to that under the grandfather clause, if you will, letting them come in, and they allowed them their worship as long as, as long as it didn't conflict with national interest. We see this throughout the New Testament. And the Jewish leaders uh, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were always in cahoots with the Roman government. And they would tell the Romans, you better do what we want you to do. They'd tell Herod and they would tell all the other rulers, if you don't do what we uh, want you to do, then we will raise a riot and the higher authorities like Caesar will wonder why you can't govern us in peace, which Pax Romano was the promise of the Roman rule of government. And that will bring hardship up on you. And so there's this mob-like, mafia-ish tension between the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders who didn't like each other, hated each other, but they got along for the common consensus of there was no other situation that they could get by with. And so both of them, out of the tension of their own situation, would turn their ire to Christians who though they came out of the Jewish ethnicity, did not enjoy the same benefits and privileges of the Jews because their claim was a new king had come. There was a governmental insurrection in the message of Christianity. And that's the way that they took it as Roman rulers. That's why Herod had all of the babies under two years of age that were young boys. He had them killed. Why? Because this was supposed to be a king that was born. As a matter of fact, it tells us that Christians of the first century were persecuted for a number of reasons. But William Barclay, one of the infamous commentators that is so acute on helping us understand the scripture, says that a couple of the reasons that Christians were persecuted so strictly and stringently in the first century, they were accused of being cannibalists because they ate the body and drank the blood of their Lord. They were political insurrectionists because their claim was that the king had come. And so for these reasons and even others, the Christians were the people everybody could pick on. Nobody had to worry about getting in trouble for doing it. It was exceptionally difficult to live as a Christian in Smyrna. As a matter of fact, the most famous martyrdom of the early church fathers was one known as Polycarp who at the writing of Revelation was likely a young man, maybe a young teenager, somewhere in his teen years, who 60 plus years later would have then become a Christian leader in this part, an early church father, specifically in the city of Smyrna. But he was known as the 12th martyr of Smyrna, and who on refusal to say Caesar is Lord, was placed on a pyre and burned. He was warned as a teenager, remained faithful, even into his 60s and 70s, an age at which many people in this day and time did not live and was martyred for his faith. You see, 
The situation for Christians in Smyrna was hard. They felt like the whole world was against them. They had no resource of themselves to change or even address their status. And on top of all of that, people hated them. And so this reality for us to consider even opposes far too many people's understanding of Christianity today. But the reality remains. Life in Smyrna was filled with hardship for this one reason. Because they were Christians. Because they were Christians. But you see, of greatest significance in these four verses is this. God holds nothing against them. I told you when I introduced these seven addresses to the churches last week that they all follow a basic pattern. And one of the basic aspects of that pattern is that, or one aspect of that basic pattern is that God would commend them or praise them for something they had done well, but then he would condemn them for something he held against them. Smyrna is one of only two churches out of the seven that God has nothing against them. He's found nothing wrong with them. Friends, that's commendable, is it not? But I fear we had rather be found wrong in God's eyes than to hear the words that God actually has to say to the church at Smyrna. And what does Jesus tell them? Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. He doesn't tell them they won't suffer. He doesn't even promise them that he will stop the suffering or prevent the suffering or even alleviate the suffering. Rather, his words guarantee just the opposite. They're going to suffer. Some are going to be thrown into jail and some are going to die. Why? Because they are Christians for no other reason other than they claim the name of Christ is Lord. But no matter how far it goes, even if it goes all the way to death, he says this, your suffering will have a limit. That's what he's telling them in verse 10 when he says for 10 days. It's not a literal period of time necessarily, but it is saying this, that whether, whether it is a little literal period of time or a reference to even a number of years, there is an end to the suffering that will come. That's the guarantee that he makes by that reference. It will have a limit, but for the one who is faithful even unto death, your reward will be without limit. I give pause to these words because we don't talk about them very much. I, I believe in most Christian circles today, most churches our theology of suffering for the cause of Christ is defunct. We prefer not to act like it's true, and maybe it won't be. But the problem with that is it doesn't prepare us when the world goes south at a really accelerating speed and to a depth that we've not experienced before. And then we go, <gasps> instead of, all right. The one who's promised is faithful. Here we go. Friends, I want you to see today that 
the one who is the king, says, even if you suffer unto death, your suffering has a limit. But if you remain faithful to me, your reward will have no limits. And I want you to walk away understanding that Jesus is the sovereign king who has conquered and he calls his people to be faithful to receive the crown of life. That reward that is without end. You see, Christians are not people who seek out suffering. We don't intentionally create situations that cause suffering on purpose anyway. But in serving Christ and advancing the gospel, we, we, we do not avoid hardship, nor do we forsake mission just because there's a threat of suffering. Last year, when I stood in front of our partners, uh, the church planters in Montana, and, and I said this simply to them, you know, when God calls us to plant a church, so many of us are ready to attack hell with the water pistol, man. We're like, we're ready to save everything. But when the suffering and the reality of it sets in, we're like, what are you doing, God? Like, we want to act like he's lost control because things got hard. When he promises us, they're going to be hard. But the hardness has a limit when the reward does not. We don't avoid hardship nor forsake the mission that he's given to us because of the threat nor the reality of suffering. We recognize in such a way that we anticipate serving Christ faithfully is accompanied by suffering. We're told this. And the thing that concerns me the most, I think, about Western American Christianity is is not that we don't see the martyrs prevalently. There are more martyrs in contemporary history than ever in the history of humanity. So we read about the martyrdom of the ages from centuries gone by in the ancient world, but the martyrs today in other parts of the world are more numerous than ever before. But we've been insulated from that. And my concern is it's lulled us into a mentality where we are not prepared for the reality. We are told in Philippians. What are we told in Philippians? If I went and asked any of you, what is your favorite theme of the book of Philippians? Many of you would rightfully say peace and joy and prayer that cast all of our life on Christ. And I would say to you, you're absolutely right. But in the first chapter, Paul writes to the church at Philippi and he says this, for it has been appointed to you to believe and to suffer. There is a mindset that we as followers of Jesus Christ must not only embrace, but we must hold and prepare ourselves for the reality of a world that the angel that masquerades as light is still operating actively in, though not ultimately in control. Therefore, we are not shocked by it, but prepared for it. Paul also tells a young Timothy, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's why Jesus says, count the cost of what it means to follow me. Please understand, friends, suffering is not our mission. Not all suffering even proves beneficial. 
Sometimes we suffer because of our sinfulness. Sometimes we suffer because we're unwise. Another way to say that is we act stupidly. But unwise seems so much more okay than stupid, right? Oh, yeah, that's why. You see, our hope, even in these times, is that though suffering may have been produced from wrong actions, because of Jesus Christ, he can bring good, and he promises to bring benefit for us from it when we repent and trust in him. Christians hold a mindset that we suffer for the mission, and often we suffer in the mission. We do not calculate the potential for nor the severity of our suffering in order to determine whether or not we're going to serve or not. Suffering does not calculate into whether or not we are going to be faithful. We serve the Lord in faithful obedience to his command, knowing that our suffering can meet us at any time, will come in a myriad of places and ways, and the potential for it is in varying degrees from one to the other. Yet we look to Jesus to remain steadfast. Friends, suffering does not threaten nor stop us because the one we worship is sufficient for us. I'm going to say that again. Suffering does not threaten nor stop us because the one we worship is sufficient for us. He's the conquering king. And what he's going to tell us here in a moment is, hey, I've been there, I've been through it, I'm on the other side of it talking to you about it. Come on, where I am, there you will be also. Let me ask you this. What is so great so glorious and so strong to enable us to withstand any suffering in this world. You think about that? Yes, you know the answer. The answer is Jesus. My question is, have you spent any time considering the question? So that the way you see Jesus is not as a passive answer that they expect you to give at church. But the ruling, reigning Lord, enthroned and exalted, who is for us, our conquering King, who is overcome and in Him we become overcomers. You see, that's what the whole of this point of this passage is about. It's what the whole New Testament's about. It's what the whole Scriptures are about. He calls His people to faithfulness in this world, even unto death because he is sufficient to sustain us beyond this world listen I, I want to be I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to be trite in it but I legitimately believe this and I have to be reminded of it regularly but I want you to believe this death is no threat to the Christian because we were crucified with Christ 2,000 years ago. We're not living. He is living in us. And until we get it in such a way that we live this life in light of it. So that it does not hinder our witness. But it compels our witness. So that we live with the priority of that understanding. And the urgency of what it means for us. That's what it matters. Everyone is going to die. Some 
are going to face the second death. The Christian hope in Jesus transcends this world to strengthen us for any and every reality that we face in this world. And what does Jesus say to us? Do not fear, be faithful. Do not fear, be faithful. I want to offer to you three qualities of our conquering King Jesus that compel us as Christians to stay focused on him so we can defeat fear and be faithful. Three qualities that we see here. And as I mentioned last week, the name and the title by which John introduces Jesus, the one who is speaking to the church, that becomes critically important for the situation that the church finds themselves in today. And how does he introduce Jesus? But he says this, the one who is the first and the last, who died and who came to life. Friends, I'll tell you, that's important truths for those who are facing the kind of suffering the church in Smyrna was facing, a city famous for its martyrdom. The first thing that we must consider, who is it that is speaking? Who is it that is speaking? The one who speaks the word of the first and the last who died and who came to life. And he says, I know your situation He is the eternal, he is the sovereign one who transcends time and space, who transcends history and reality according to our understanding because he is the eternal one. He is the one who came, he is the one who laid down his life to be killed as a man, to be buried in the grave, but on the third day was raised up by the power of God the Father who was presented to over 500 people as I witnesses in the 40 days that he walked upon the earth and then ascended into heaven where he sits today enthroned and exalted at the right hand of the father ruling and reigning and the question is do you believe he's on his throne because that's where he speaks to us today from he says I've been there Do you realize there's nowhere Jesus has not been? That Ephesians tells us even in the three days that he was buried, he descended into hell. He looked Satan right in the eyes and said, it's done, man, it's done. You lose. We win. That's Lang's free interpretation of Ephesians. There's nothing Jesus hasn't faced. Think about this for your Monday morning. There's nothing that he has not looked into and conquered and walked away victorious. Friends, understand that the quality of the one who is speaking to us here, there will never be anything in this life nor after that you will ever encounter that Jesus has not already conquered. There has been a period put at the end of that sentence. It is done, finished. And that's what he tells them. God says, I know your situation. God knows the church at Smyrna. For the one who is conquered knows your trials and your tribulations, your poverty, your hardship, and the lies of your slander that come from the synagogue of Satan. 
Every last part of it, every substance that makes it, every nuance that resonates from it. And I tell you, it is not as the world says, Jesus says, it is as I shall command it to be. What greater comfort could there be, friends, than to know that the God who knows, who sees, and who cares will be the one with the final word to command the way it will be forevermore. For the glory of Christianity is that the one we worship is not only known by us, but listen to me, this is important, knows us, knows us. I'm going to tell you, you can mention the name of Lane and God will go, I know him. And for every Christian, it is your name by which he calls you because he knows you. But my question to you today is not do you know about God? Does God know you? Are you confident because of the blood of Jesus, not because of you or for any other reason, that if your name got called before him, he go, I know them. They're my child. That's the confidence we have in Jesus Christ, friends. There's even a book that has our name in it, we're told. Have you settled this in your mind so that it settles your heart? I'm not talking about intellectual entertainment. I'm not talking about, you know, the wrangling through and doctrinally, you know, this is where you ought to land, so that's where you keep putting yourself. I mean, have you entertained it in such a way that it has infiltrated into the affections and the affinities of your life? It is the deepest love. It is that which determines everything else about you. I told you this whole series was going to be driven by priority and urgency. And I'm telling you, this is a doctrine that must receive first priority in your life, in all things, at all times. Though you may not be constantly faced with it in the luxury and the privilege at which we enjoy in the place and the point in history in which we live. But it is no less a priority for us as Christians to hold a mindset of suffering that is faithful not to give in to fear, but to be faithful to the commands of Christ and to live with urgency because of that. I think many times the way that we don't show it's a priority for us is we're slight on the urgency. We'd rather maintain a friendship or an acquaintanceship or we'd rather not rock the boat than just simply share a faithful witness for why we believe what we believe. They might make fun of me. My reputation might be tainted. Someone might say something about me that was slanderous. You're picking up what I'm laying down, right? If you're a Christian, God knows you too. So that, not if, but when, when you face persecution. And listen to me, I don't buy into this. If it's not near martyrdom, it doesn't count. That's not true. Anything that comes across your path that challenges your faith in Jesus Christ gets on the persecution spectrum. And you go, well, I may not be a polycarp. But neither do I want to be a Nicholas that denies the faith and teaches others to do the same. When you face persecution and suffering, even to death, there's only one that can provide a promise that matters. That's the one who's overcome death. 
who has overcome death. Be sure you are known by Jesus. And this is my deep concern, friends, in a culture that is akin, in many ways, conformed by Christianity. It can be easy to wear the label. But I'm not asking you if you've put the label on. I'm asking you if the one who's living in you is the new creation that only he can make of you. Have you been born again? Have you been made new, made alive from death? Are you confident that God knows you because you know he is with you? Because you hear from him in his word and you respond to him in your life. Friends, you don't get through suffering by gritting and bearing it. Listen, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Western movies. I've just never bought into some parts of them. And the part I don't ever buy into is, you know, when somebody gets shot, they always go, okay, we gotta get dig it out. So they pull out like this 12-inch Bowie knife to go after a small bullet and then they stick a, they put a stick in the person's mouth and go, Hold on. You know, I'm like, no, no, no. You didn't knock me out. I don't even want to see the needle coming today. You know what I mean? I mean, take me out before it ever gets to that point. We're not ever going to survive suffering by just gritting and bearing it. You won't make it. You don't survive suffering by ignoring it. That's not going to happen to us. We, we live in a world, we live in a country, we live in a place where that couldn't happen to us. You, you, don't, you don't survive suffering by hoping it'll go away. Yes, that's a great way to handle the problems of your life. Just act like they don't exist. And they'll just go away. Works every time. I hope you understand my satire. It doesn't work at all. Suffering brings you to the end of yourself. It shows you the limits of your capability. It shows you the limits of your resource. That's what, that's what he's saying to the church at Smyrna. I know your tribulation. You're at the end of your rope. Like you're, you're like Wally Coyote. You ran out past the end of the cliff. You got nowhere to go. And you recognize that that's where you are in life. As a matter of fact, there's no help. And even if you had the forethought to turn around and find the end of your rope to try and reach for it, you can't even do that. Like the limits of your resource have long been surpassed. Your capability is gone. You are at the end of yourself. And when you get there, if you don't have someone or something to draw from that is there with you, you will never overcome. Never overcome. Mentally, emotionally, physically, economically, it doesn't matter. And for some, the text even states, your suffering will end in death. You're going to die for your faith. Let me ask you this, is that which is filling your heart from God sufficient if suffering becomes your lot from God. Is he worthy to you of you? 
you make that decision not after you've run past the end of the cliff. You make it every day when your eyes open and your feet hit the floor and your lungs draw breath. Whatever comes today, the name of Jesus will be made known by this life. As long as there is breath, we will praise you. We will speak the name of Jesus. You only need to worry about the outcome if that which you are trusting is not sufficient to conquer whatever is bringing your suffering. And the one who speaks this first quality that reminds us that he is worthy of our faithfulness, he is the one who is the first and the last who died and came to life. He is the one, the only one, who is sufficient. Sufficient. Jesus is the sovereign one who knows our situation inside and out. He is the one who speaks. The second quality of this one is that when we look to the one who speaks, we need to hear the words he commands. This is the second quality. Look at the word that he commands. Verse 10, it starts out, do not fear what you are about to suffer. And it culminates in be faithful even unto death. Do not fear, be faithful. Years ago, I was watching a golf tournament. I don't know why. I don't know why. Why does anybody watch a golf tournament, right? Except it was Tiger Woods. And I rode the bandwagon. I'm a Tiger fan, right? I mean, he was just fun to watch. And this was really before so many of his struggles began to kind of compile. But, but it was one of the first seasons where he had really taken a back seat from being the winner of everything he entered, you know. But he was coming on strong, and it looked like he was going to win yet another major championship. And the commentators were discussing uh, in the conversation and interviews with him what he had attributed his struggles to. And he said, I really began to have trouble with mental focus in the game. And so he began to talk about how he had uh, begun to visit with a sports psychologist that helped him learn mental uh, principles and strategies for staying engaged in the game so that he could focus and return and fulfill or maximize his abilities. And so after that time, I remember Sports psychology became more and more of a major emphasis for pro athletes. More and more, they were, they were implementing mental strategies to address the game. And I, I tell a lot of people when I've coached, listen, the game's won and lost here. But that's not what I mean by it. I'm not more trash talking and that kind of thing. Get in their head and then you don't have to worry about how skilled and gifted they are, right? That's the Dennis Rodman school of basketball, but listen, friends, setting your mind is not an original sports psychology technique. It's the command of the sovereign. That's what this is all about. He, he commands that we set our minds on the word that he gives, his command, which is his truth for our obedience. And his command is twofold. Do not fear, be faithful unto death. The one who is sovereign the one who speaks, who is from first to last, the one who is the beginning and the end, the King of kings and the Lord of lords says, do not fear, be faithful even unto death. 
And he commands that we might set our minds on his word and trust in his truth. You see, conquering fear comes, friends, by the exercise of our faith to obey. Until faith has been exercised, it's nothing more than a trending topic to discuss. But once it gets exercised, it becomes that through which we conquer our fear. And Jesus knew this because even Hebrews tells us that Jesus had to learn obedience by what he suffered. And Jesus says, listen, I've been to it, I've come through it, and by faith in me, so shall you conquer it. When you know the one that you worship is the sovereign one who has conquered, you trust his word that he commands because in him you too shall conquer and overcome. In my father's last sermon he would ever preach in this world, he spoke from his life verse. I remember the night before uh, all of the talk about COVID was beginning to swirl and we pretty much knew we, we had already made the decision that we were going to have to shut down uh, in-person services for up to eight weeks and we didn't know what was coming. I mean, this was something striking us that we had no idea what was coming and he had planned to preach a different passage and he came to me that Saturday night and he said, Lane, I really think I'm supposed to preach a different passage today. You don't tell your dad no when he says that to you. And I said, all right, what do you want to do? He says, well, I know you need some moments to address the church, and so I want to give you some time. I'm going to reduce the time of my sermon. For Harrison, that means we're going to take it from the 50 to the 35-minute range. And he spoke from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, his life verses. And he talked about faith that conquers fear. And so in this pulpit, in the last sermon he would ever preach on this earth, in the most trying times of any of our lives that we didn't even yet know, he said this, if you have fear, you do not have faith. If you have faith, you do not have fear. Listen, that can be taken as a very trite cliche. It can be reduced to something that it was not intended to be. But the fact of the matter is that fear only wins when faith and faithfulness are abandoned. Faith in the one who is dead and is alive always conquers fear, even unto death. Fear may threaten you. It may be a regular and continual presence and threat in your life, but fear does not have to have you. And the way that you know that you do not have fear is only to not let fear have you. To confront it with faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus to obey conquers fear that threatens to have you. And in this word that Jesus commands, do not fear, be faithful. That's what he is saying. That when fear threatens, you have a choice to make. And that choice that conquers fear is always faith exercised to obey even unto death if it is demanded. The third quality of the one who speaks, the word he commands, is simply this, the reward he promises. The end of verse 10, verse 11. I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus tells the church at Smyrna, 
they will receive the crown of life. The crown of life is the victor's crown. It's not the royal regalia that a king would wear. Rather, it is the wreath that is awarded in athletic competition that adorns the champion as they stand on the victory box in the first place. Now imagine John writing this to a congregation of people living in a city that claimed to be the first city of Asia, that it was adorned with streets of gold that wrapped around the proverbial neck of Mount Pegasus and adorned the gods of the world with the wreath of firstness of championship in their day. John says, they are not the champions. Jesus is and those who believe in him shall be forevermore your suffering will have a limit your reward however will not these parallel truths from Jesus hold our hope as the christian that his reward is more glorious than the world's glory and more worthy than any sacrifices demand And his promise is more true than any reality of our experience. You see, friends, no one avoids physical death. But all who conquer by faith in the one who conquered will not be touched by the second death. The question is, what about you? Do you know God? Does God know you? Are you putting your hope in him alone and only so that whatever today, tomorrow, next week, next month comes, it will not be a crushing blow. It'll be an invitation into a more intimate walk with Jesus for his honor and glory for your crown of life.